0: turn to, in your Bible uh, to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be in this uh, great, wonderful chapter of the Scriptures again this morning, uh, which we will get to here in just a moment. We want to share a couple of things before uh, we turn our attention more directly to that. wanted to say a simple welcome to you if you're a guest with us this morning. Uh, if you're from out of town, welcome. Uh, thank you for worshiping, it, worshiping with us. But if you're a local here and you don't have a church family and you're worshiping with us and you'd be interested in maybe learning more about who we are and letting us get to know who you are Uh, I'd ask that you could take some time this morning or it could be later today as well but fill out what we call a connection card you could do it digitally follow that QR code or you could do it uh, old school paper on the back of the program that you received if you do it that way uh, take it with you out to the lobby before you leave and take a left and there's a counter some folks would love to receive that and talk to you uh, for a few moments Um, but we're grateful that you're here with us and we'll follow up with you uh, if you fill out one of those cards. Uh, If you are also new-ish to the church. Maybe you've been here a few weeks. Uh, Every month we do what we call a coffee with the pastors on Sunday night. We're going to do that next Sunday, so seven days from now, six o'clock at night. Uh, You don't have to sign up for it, just show up for it. Uh, We have good desserts and coffee. We have decaf too, if that helps. Uh, But it's over on this side of the building. If you come, uh, you can head over that direction next Sunday night, and it'll be an opportunity for us to get to know you, vice versa, uh, in a more uh, informal but more personal way. Uh, I want to say all also two other things. One, a thank you for your ongoing generosity as a church family, as individuals, as couples, as families. So thank you for your continuous giving into our general fund. and want to just continue to encourage you to continue that. Uh, what you maybe give digitally or put in an offering box, sometimes it can feel out of sight, out of mind, but it enables the ministries that the Lord's doing through our church uh, here in our community and all over the world. And the last thing before we uh, turn our attention here is we have tonight, we have, we have these once a year, uh, our annual members meetings at six o'clock tonight. If you're a formal member of the church, we ask that you come. Uh, if you are just a non-member of the church, you attend, or you're interested in learning more, you are welcome to come. Uh, but it'll be at six o'clock tonight in this room. Uh, we'll have child care provided on that side of the building uh, for younger kids. Uh, we'll have snacks near the end. We'll hopefully have time of Q&A and whatnot, but we'll be sharing about some of what has been the last year or so, some of what we anticipate ahead uh, in the, the year that is to come. And so I hope that you can come tonight at six o'clock. I'll remind you of that again at the end of the service. All right. Some of the grandparents in the room may remember an event that I wish I would have been alive to witness. It happened back on Christmas Eve of 1968. Uh, If you were alive in 1968 or maybe you've read about it, it was an incredibly hard year in our country, but really all over the world. Uh, But on Christmas Eve of 1968, there was a television broadcast that close to a billion people watched. Uh, A billion. That was like a quarter of the world's population uh, at that time. And it was of the Apollo 8, uh, the astronauts uh, that were up in uh, lunar orbit around the moon. They were able to to broadcast a signal several times, but on this night in particular, they knew it was going to be, even before they left, they knew they were going to do this one on Christmas Eve. Uh, And the commander of that mission was named Frank Borman. And he was told in advance that there would probably be about a billion people listening, no pressure. pressure, right? And they told them, one of his supervisors said, we want you to say something appropriate. So like, what, what is that? Like, what would be fitting? <laughs> what would be appropriate to have a billion people listening when you're orbiting the moon and sending this signal back? And so he and some others tried to think about what would they say? Uh, what would they communicate back to Earth? Would they try to make some sly comments about Vietnam and peace on Earth? Or no, Nothing really felt fitting to them. Uh, but there was a friend of a friend who suggested to them uh, that... They, uh, this was what they said, that about the only thing that they could think of to match the majesty of the occasion and of that evening would be to read the opening lines of Genesis. That was what they were imagining would fit the occasion, the only thing that their mind could go to. And so that's what they ended up doing. They printed it on fireproof paper, took it up with them on the the spaceship. And on Christmas Eve of 1968, there's this moving uh, telecast where uh, the astronauts, they started this way, this part. They said, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 have a message that we would like to send to you. And then what they proceeded to do, uh, person by person, there was three of them, was they read a few verses from Genesis 1. Uh, Genesis 1, 1 through verse 10. uh, They stopped at about verse 10. Uh, They took their turns reading that from the King James Version. You can watch a video of it. Uh, Go on YouTube. It is a moving thing. Uh, But they ended then, right after the reading, they just seamlessly said, from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. And about a billion people did hear that uh, in the moment and then many more have heard it since. Uh, And that text that they chose to read, that they... was the only thing that could possibly fit the occasion and rise to the, the majesty of that moment the significance of that moment is what we get the privilege of reading this morning uh, that and what is more important is not just that it was sent from the moon and orbit of the moon back to earth but that this was given from God to us uh, this very beginning of his story of how he created the world and so I'm going to read here in just a moment what they read I'm not going to read it from King James but from ESV we're going to even go past where they stopped we're going to go from verse 3 all the way down through verse 25 this morning. So we'll get through a big chunk of this. But before I read this, I want to share a couple of framing thoughts to make sure we're hearing it in the right way. Uh, If you were with us last Sunday, uh, you saw we started at the very, very beginning of the Bible, the first two verses of the Scriptures, uh, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's what we took time to look at. We saw that uh, a summary is given in verse 1 that. The summary of chapter one that God created the heavens and the earth. Then we saw that in verse two, the stage was set, that there was this uh, darkness, there was this, uh, the earth was without form and void. So the stage is set for God to start his more creative work of forming the world. And then we saw lastly that the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters, that he was poised, ready to do uh, work on behalf of even the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So that's what we saw last Sunday. What we're about to read is probably very familiar to most of you, uh, if not all of you. Uh, We're about to read at least a good chunk of, not the entirety of, this description of God creating and Him forming our world. And we're going to see that's in a series of six days. We're going to get through about day five and a half. We're going to get partway through uh, day six this morning, Lord willing. Uh, But what we're going to see, and what you'll see again as I read through this, is God preparing a place for human beings to live. Uh, that's what he's doing from day one on. He's preparing a place for human beings to live and to rule. So, this is going to be a long text, but follow along with me in your copy of the scripture. I'm going to read from Genesis 1, verse 3 through verse 25. If kids want a fun thing to do uh, while you're listening to this, try to count how many times the word and is in here. It is a ton, okay? Uh, so, but pay attention to the other words too. Count, you'll need a lot of hands and toes and other people's maybe alright all right. under the inspiration of the spirit Moses continued writing this and God said let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of it. We are actually going to spend two weeks in this text, uh, verses 3 through 25. Uh, If you were paying attention in the reading, uh, you probably noticed that there's several times on which it says that God separated something from something else, right? Day from night, light from dark, uh, the waters from the waters. So in the spirit of that separating, uh, we're going to separate this text, focus on two different things, one this week, one next week. And how we're going to separate this text is that this morning, we're going to talk Talk about what is clear in this text. And then next Sunday, and we will come with the right attitudes to this, we are going to talk about what is controversial. In this text. Uh, so this morning I want us to talk about what is clear in this text. Next Sunday, we'll get more into what is controversial because there is a lot of controversy about this text, especially in our day, about how long is a day? Is it 24 hours? Is it an age? There's how old is the earth? All these types of questions. They're important questions that we'll talk about next Sunday. And uh, so I hope that you can come back for that. I think it'll be beneficial to us, not that I'm I or we are gonna settle debates, uh, but it'll help us to see what God has said and to help establish boundaries of what is orthodox what can we believe where can we have disagreement and when we do have disagreement how do we disagree as brothers and sisters in Christ so that will be next Sunday uh, today I want us to revel in what is clear in this text because there is a lot uh, I, I don't want us to just jump to controversy and miss what God clearly teaches us what he shows us about himself about ourselves and about our world So last Sunday, those first two verses of Genesis 1, uh, we saw that God created, right? It just said God made the heavens and the earth. Uh, Here in this text, we start to see not just that God created, but we see how God created, right? There's a manner in which he created. God could have just given us verses 1, or really just verse 1, maybe verse 2, and then just jumped to uh, chapter two where we start to see the Garden of Eden and he could have just zoomed in and started talking about the garden, about this man and woman that he was creating and placing in it. He could have done that. Uh, But he didn't. He chose to give us more of a glimpse, even though it's not exhaustive, more of a glimpse into how he created, how he unfolded this world that he wanted to create. And so this morning I want us to pay attention to three particular facets of this story, of this narrative of creation and the days of creation, uh, three dimensions, characteristics of it. And they're all going to start with the letter P. Alliteration can be helpful. Uh, But the first thing that I want to do is just kind of come back and make some observations observations of this text and show you and establish uh, again for us that it is a poetic text. Uh, and do not hear when I say that we'll talk more about this next Sunday that I'm saying it is not history I've tried to establish again and again and will always try to establish that Moses was recording history this isn't just some poetic depiction that's purely poetry but it is presented to us even though it is real events it's presented to us in a poetic way in a a way that has certain flow and feel to it and I want to highlight some of those things uh, just observation wise that we may miss in our familiarity with this text. And so the first poetic dimension to this wonderful majestic text is that there's a rhythm to it, right? You, you hear that even in just in the reading of it, or even if you just silently put your eyes over it, there's like a rhythm even just visibly of the words that every day, every one of these six days, we didn't get to the end of day six yet, correct? But every day, if you were paying attention, started and ended the same way, right? Every day starts by saying, And God said, right? Day one. Day two. And God said. Day three. And God said. Day four. And God said. There's this rhythm of how the days begin. And then there's a rhythm as a narrative of how the days end. Every single one of these days ends the description by saying, And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And there was evening and there was morning the second day, and so on and so forth. Those go through all the days. So there's this rhythm to the text, right? But there's also even beyond that, there's a, a broader repetition to the text. Those things are every single day, God said, and then uh, there was more, There was evening and there was morning. But there's this repetition that doesn't appear in every single day, but that appears in several throughout, different phrases and ideas that I think were intended to learn something from and see something from by the fact that they're repeated again and again. Just some examples, and you may have noticed some other ones. Uh, Again and again in this text, there's a phrase, and there was, like God said, let there be this. And there was this, right? Or sometimes it's phrased, and it was so. Like God speaks something, and then it's like this narrative confirmation. Yep, that happened. Like that, that came to be. And what that shows us, that repetition of, and there was this. It shows us the power of God's word, right? When he says something, none of his words return void, right? When he says something, when he decrees something, it happens. And it was so. Whenever God speaks, it will always become true. It will become reality. There's also the phrase again and again in this text that God saw that fill in the blank was good, Right, You see that rhythm or felt that rhythm that God saw that it was good. God saw that this was good. God saw that that was good. Eventually, we're going to get to a God saw that it was very good uh, after he creates human beings. That will come later in the chapter. But just that repetition of God saw that it was good, it's not like God didn't know the goodness of it, and then he looks, oh, wow, that's a good thing. What, it, what it's saying, it's like it's an authoritative assessment of God. That the way he views things is the way they are, right? Like he, his view of things, his view of you, his view of anything in all of reality, his view of it is the correct one. It is accurate. His assessment is always spot on. When God sees that it is good, it is good. You see also again and again that God named things, right? Like God called it this. God called this day. He called this night. That God is naming things, seas and land. God is naming these things, calling them such and such. And that shows this process of naming things, shows God's dominion, his rule over his creation. He doesn't just create it and then watch it, uh, but he names the. The things he names, the things that he has created eventually, he's going to entrust that even to human beings in part. But God, even before humans, is starting to name things, and so that shows his dominion, his rule. Right? And then the last thing I'll point out repetition-wise is you see this phrase again and again, according to their kinds, right? about trees and about animals and sea creatures. This phrase appears again and again that God made them according to their kinds. And that shows us the repetition of that, the creativity of God, the, the diversity of what he made. He didn't just make one kind of tree. Right, Or one kind of plant. Or one kind of fish. Like he embedded in his creation variety that shows the breadth of his creativity. And the repetition of that according to their kinds should remind us of that. So there's this rhythm, this repetition. But what you see uh, and what I wouldn't want us to miss also is that there's a progression to this narrative. There's a, a progress that you see from day one to day two to day three and to the end of the week. God did not create all things at once, right? He could have, he, he could have just made everything, spoken it all into existence just as he wanted, but he chose to create it in order to, to have an unfolding of creation, right? Uh, step by step, day by day, there was this unfolding of creation. And I I think there's this beautiful thing that you see happening here. And I did not notice this on my own. A lot of people for centuries and centuries have noticed this. But there's a a strong parallel, if you pay attention, between days one through three and days four through six. Uh, If you remember back in verse two, what we read, it said that this earth before day one was without form and it was void. So as we talked last Sunday, it was kind of uninhabitable, and it was uninhabited. And it's like as these days unfold, God's addressing both of those things. So day one through three, he's addressing that first thing, that the earth was without form. And so he starts forming these spaces started in days one through three starts creating these spaces for things to be in or to live in. And then days four through six, he's addressing that the label of it being void, that there's nothing there. There's nothing living in it. And days four through six he starts Filling these spaces with creatures, right? With luminaries, with the sun and moon, with uh, fish, with land animals, ultimately with uh, human beings. And so, uh, God, days one through three, he's forming spaces, right? Like he creates light uh, and separates it from the darkness. But then day two, he says he separates the waters above from the waters below. There's difference of opinion of what that means. But he's creating sky, Right? He's creating heavens, uh, a sky that is still empty. right? And then day three, what he does, he separates the waters from the waters on the face of the earth. Right? So then there's seas and there's land. But there's still nothing on or in either of those. right? That, so he started forming these spaces, days one through three. you get to day four through six he starts filling them before you get to day four it's kind of like a house that you made and you furnished you even maybe stocked the fridge right like he put plants and trees and stuff is there by the end of day three but there's still no beings there to live in it or to consume it right it's like an empty but furnished house before day four but day four he starts filling these spaces right like he's he fills the sky First, before there's living things, he fills the sky, the empty sky, with the sun and the moon. And I love how he just says, "and the stars." Like that, I feel like that deserves more than just a "and the stars." But he he fills the sky with these luminaries, right? Then he fills those empty seas and land with fish and great sea creatures and land animals according to their kinds, right? On day six is when he starts creating those land animals. Day five, he had created the fish and the birds, right? And so there's this progression. God created spaces, then he fills those spaces with creatures. And so there's this poetic feel that helps us. It's not lessening the history of it, it just helps it to stick better. Like God knew what he was doing and creating in this progressive way where he would form and then where he would fill. So there's this poetic description here in chapter 1. But a second trait of this chapter, this majestic text uh, that I, I want us to miss is that it's not just poetic. I want to teach some of you words. Some of you already know this. But is that it's also a polemic of sorts. That it's polemical. A lot of you may not know what that means. What a polemic is. If it's poetic but it's also polemical. A polemic is when someone writes something or gives a talk or something that's trying to refute somebody else's ideas very strongly. Like you're trying to take down somebody else's arguments, take down somebody else's opinions. That's what a polemic is. Usually it has kind of like this edge to it or like a hardness to it. So this may be a bit too strong of a word to use for Genesis 1, but I couldn't think of like a softer word. And I, I, but I use this word polemic because, what I believe Moses is doing in part, I think foremost, he's trying to just describe what happened, what God revealed to him that actually happened on these days of creation. But I believe he's also an additional layer trying to refute and combat. False creation stories, stories that already in their day and time were, were, were spreading, were, were well known, were well believed by people. I think he was trying to address and even correct these false views of creation, these false views of how we came to be, how this universe came to be, how humans came to be. Right? And it's important for us to remember the context of this. As we understand, at least as I would understand Genesis, it's written by Moses to these Israelite, Israelite people, right? these ancient Israelites who had just been rescued out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, right? where they had kind of been immersed in Egyptian ways of thinking and been around these people and these different views who had no real regard for Yahweh and the God of Israel. So that's what they had been coming out of, and they were about to go into Canaan, where there's these, all these other people groups who also don't believe in Yahweh, who have their own gods, who have their own ideas of how this world came to be. And it's like Moses is trying to both refute what maybe they've slowly absorbed or been tempted to absorb from Egypt, but also to prepare them for the worldviews they're going to be around when they go into Canaan, right? And so he, he's trying to address these things, I think, with the people of Israel. And it it is fascinating and interesting to try to look up what some of the uh, stories, creation stories would have been outside of this one Um, back in the ancient world, in Mesopotamia, in this part of the world. It is very interesting to look up the ways that they viewed the world, the ways that they thought that, that the world came to be, that we came to be. You can look up some of them for yourself if you'd like to. There's a, a very famous one, a Babylonian one called the Enuma Elish. You can look it up. It is weird as can be. Uh, read it for yourself. Some people try to say Genesis 1 is just like these other ancient Near East stories. It is most definitely not. Like there is some small overlaps, right? Which, if the world really was created by a singular God, right, in one particular way, we would expect that there's some overlaps as different cultures descend from them, right, and are trying to, to recall what God had told their first ancestors. There's gonna be some overlap, right? Uh, but the overlap is small uh, between what we have in Genesis 1 and these other ancient stories of creation. Some of these stories, these other ancient stories, they did have in the very beginning like waters that were covering the earth, right? Like these waters of chaos and even a separating of the waters. Some of them have record of a flood and a, and a, a ship that, that survives it, things like that. But the overlaps are very insignificant in comparison to where there's difference. There's much more different than the same about these stories. Uh, you go back and read some of these stories. What is clear as day, and this is fundamentally different from Genesis 1, is that all of these different views of creation, how the world came to be, would be what, what what most of us would call polytheistic. Like they had this idea that there were all sorts of gods, uh, lowercase g, these gods and goddesses who would think different things and do different things and even fight against each other, war against each other, and that's how the world came to be. That's how uh, this creation came to be. And they, the, their stories, almost all of them, are this creation that happens out of conflict between these gods like that there's these battles there's these disagreements there's even murder sometimes between these so-called gods and this conquest of each other and kind of waging war against each other and whoever wins like they're the ones who get attributed with creating this world you read that enuma elish story it is i said it's weird it's also fascinating it starts with these waters on the earth that do get divided it gets divided into like fresh water and salt water that are called god, like a god and a goddess. And supposedly they have children together uh, and they have all these like younger gods uh, who, who kind of annoy the father god. And he gets very frustrated with them and uh, there, there's conflict between them. And ultimately they like overthrow and take down their father, this god. And then the wife gets very mad. And like she gets in a combat with the, the younger gods and there's this whole big to-do. And, there, and finally there's this one younger god named Marduk uh, that you may have heard that name before. And it's like he uh, puts that mom in her place and even puts her to death. And then as this ruler, this one who's been shown that he's the most powerful, he uses this body, so to speak, of some other god that was slain in the process. He uses the body of that god to create the world. That does not sound like Genesis 1, right? Like, you've got the waters, and that's about it, right? Like, this is fundamentally different. And, like, Moses wants them to know, like, there is one God. Like, there are not rival gods. There are not goddesses. There is none of that stuff. Yes, there are spirits, there are angels. He'll he'll eventually talk about some of these things. But he is wanting to confront these false worldviews they may have absorbed. Or that they may absorb in the future. He wants them to know there is one God who created all of this. And the way he created it wasn't out of conflict. It wasn't out of fighting some other God. And he's the triumphant one and now he creates this world. The way that he creates the world is by his word. Right? Because he wants to, right? Not because he's won some battle. He wants to. And Moses, again and again in this creation story, and it's going to carry through all of the Torah, all of these first five books of the Bible, he's wanting them and he would want us to see that God has no rivals. None. Like Derek Kidner, this one commentator, said that there may be rebels in God's kingdom, but there are no rivals. And Moses wants that to be clear as day with us, that Yahweh is God. He is the creator. And that is as true today as it was in the ancient world. Because creation happened once, right? There is one creator and the story of his creation is right here for us. So this serves in some ways as a polemic against these these false views of creation, these false understandings of how we came to be but I would suggest to you it's not just a polemic for these ancient Israelites. It's also one for us to learn from, uh, to combat the false worldviews of our day and the, the different understandings of how, uh, that people hold to of how we came to be even today. Right? This Genesis 1 continues to serve as a polemic against polytheism. There are many religions in our world and even in our community. People hold to religions that believe in many gods that believe in a pantheon of gods and goddesses, that they may understand their relationships differently and different religions may sort them out differently, but Genesis 1 serves as a monument to refute polytheism and to say there is one God, there is one creator of this world and of all human beings. And any belief in and in multiplicity of gods is false and must be rejected, Right? This text, Genesis 1, serves as a polemic today against not just polytheism, but against atheism, right? There might not have been very many atheists back in the ancient world, but there are today, right? There are many people who look around at our world and think there is no God. Like, I can come up with some explanation of how we came to be here without God, but Genesis 1 serves as a monument and a testimony that combats atheism. It starts with the assumption and the assertion from the, be- the, the start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is true. It was true then. It is true now. I think Genesis 1 serves as a monument. It serves as a, a polemic even against the concept of evolution. Right? Like that, this belief that has become common in our day that this world just kind of randomly, uh, unguided process, kind of developed and developed and developed, and eventually, at this long chain of millions and millions of years, became human beings. This refusal, This, this Genesis 1 stands as a testimony that God spoke things into existence, that He formed them Himself, He fashioned them according to their kinds, right? And the last thing I would say that this serves as a polemic against in our day and age is this strange, strange phenomenon that I see more and more where people talk about the universe like a person. Like, oh, the universe is telling me this. Or the universe hasn't given me this. Do you hear people say things like this? Sometimes it's becoming more and more common and it's strange to me because simultaneously our our day and age people will scoff at the ignorance of ancient people that they think, but they will hold views that are very similar at the bottom of it. that Just like the ancient Near East people thought that the, the universe is these gods and goddesses who are doing stuff for me or not, people still think that nonsense today. They they will still speak of the universe as a person when the universe is a creation and everything in it is a creation. There is one creator, right? We ought to never thank the universe for anything, right? Thank mother nature for nothing. There is no mother nature. There is a creator God like who made you, who made this entire world and it all belongs to him and Genesis 1 serves as a monument to that truth. It did back then. It does now. It will to all eternity. There is one Creator. So it's poetic depiction here of creation. It is a polemical description of creation. But the last one, uh, the last thing I want to show and establish here is that as a preparatory work what we've read at least thus far up through partway through day six of creation it's a preparatory work it's God preparing a place for people to live for human beings specifically to live right all of it is bending toward that the very next verse when we get to it a couple weeks from now is verse 26 then God says let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's the culmination of creation is human beings finally living in this space that God made for us to live and for us to rule. But days one through four, one or and five and part of six are all this preparing of a place for human beings. To live, We're even going to see in chapter 2 this preparatory work of God that when God planted the garden of Eden look at chapter 2 verse 8 it says that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. And so it's like God again more specifically is preparing a a locale a place for human beings to live. And the wonder of wonders (laughs) to me is that as we continue to read the scriptures and ultimately have Jesus enter into our world, God the Son, we see several texts in the New Testament that tell us that he was the agent by which all of this was created at the beginning. Like that, read John 1, the start of it. It is no accident how John starts his gospel with how Moses starts the entirety of the scriptures, that in the beginning was the word. Right? And the word was with God and the word was God. And then he says, a, a few sentences later, he says that all, speaking of Jesus, John says, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus, the at least pre-incarnate Jesus, was here in Genesis 1. He, he was the Word, right? God's speaking these things into existence. He's the agent by whom these things are happening and coming to be. He's the one who is preparing this place for human beings to live on this earth. But then He becomes a human being, right? Fascinating. And there are so many places my mind went to <laughs> throughout this week uh, that Genesis 1 kind of steers my brain to in the New Testament of like what uh, Bill read earlier, like how God, who said, let there be light uh, out of darkness, has shone into our hearts. There's tons of texts like that, but one that surprised me that my mind kept coming to again and again this week is I was seeing the preparatory work of God in creation was something Jesus himself said the night he was about to be betrayed and arrested and many of you are familiar with this many of you are familiar with the last verse of this but I want to read the lead up to it for you so Jesus said this and hear the work of preparing a place he said to his disciples that night let not your hearts be troubled believe in God believe also in me And the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus knew that night, he knew what was about to happen, right? He knew he was about to be arrested, he knew he was going to be laid in a tomb the next day, he knew he was going to be raised on the third day, he knew that he was going to ascend to heaven, and he knew that a new creation was about to be started. Right? A new creation, a new existence was about to begin when he was raised from the dead. And he's using this language, I think it's very reminiscent of Genesis 1, of him saying, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. Like, I'm going to prepare a better world where, the Father, where you can be one with the Father. You can actually come to the Father. You don't need to fear him like, I'm going to go create this space, create this world for you to live in. Because this world is great. It is, it is wonderful, but it is also deeply broken, right? And our, we have a shelf life in it, don't we? But Jesus said, I am going to go prepare a place for you, one that is far better than this world, one that, that far surpasses it, where you can have peace with God the Father again. But what Jesus knew, though, was that In order for that world to be created, in order for that place to be prepared, what was not gonna happen was some sort of like cosmic conflict between these gods and goddesses, right? For this world to be prepared wasn't even just gonna be God speaking something. And it happening, for this world to be prepared for humans to actually live in, where there's no threat of death, where there's peace with God, where there's harmony forever, for this world to be created, there was actually going to, instead of conflict, there was going to need to be sacrifice. Right? As God the Son, He wasn't going to combat some other God and and emerge victorious. He would fight death and emerge victorious. But the way this world was going to be created was through self-sacrifice right? Not through taking on somebody else. It was going to come through self-sacrifice. And it wasn't going to come through vengeance and like vindicating himself and taking out on other people. How this world was going to be created was him taking the wrath of God himself, not executing it on other people, right? Because the massive problem, the thing that keeps us from being, moving from this world to that world is the problem of our sin and our rebellion against our Creator. The only way that that could be dealt with and that we could actually enter in to this new world would be if Christ absorbed the wrath that we deserve. If he took the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin that keeps us away from God, if he absorbed that and only if he absorbed that could we be brought near to God. Could we actually enter into this new world that was about to begin at the resurrection? And Jesus knew that was going to be and that is exactly what happened. That he went to the cross the very next day after he uttered those words. And in his death, and then in his resurrection, he established a new world. He, he, a new creation was began in that tomb outside Jerusalem. And now it's spreading and spreading. And he's gone back now to be with the Father. That is where he is right now as a full-blooded human being. Right? Ruling over all things. And someday he is going to unite his people, resurrected. My phone is going off, telling me something. Uh, someday Siri must like the good news of Jesus. That that is wonderful. Uh, someday he is going to return right and that this new creation is going to begin once for all with resurrected human beings right we shall be like him we will be like him we will be raised in this world this new creation uh, that will have no serpents that enter into it right That will not even have a potential of sin. And the only reason we can be in it is because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. None of us are going into that world apart from union with Jesus. And for many of you, that has already happened. You maybe heard years and years and years ago this good news of Jesus, and you said, Father, please forgive me. Like, I know Christ died for me, and he was raised. Please forgive me. I want to come to you. Please forgive me. And he did. And you've been part of that creation now for years. Some of you, though, are still at odds with God. And you maybe have this longing that you can't even fully articulate. You have a longing to be in a better world. You have a longing that God put within you to live in a world that is at peace and harmony and you don't know how to get there. Or maybe you're just banking on that God will grade on a curve or something and that, that he'll let you be part of this world. He does not grade on curves. He, Jesus himself said that the way of the Father is through him. And if that is you this morning, like, I would urge you just to do what I've done, to do what many in this room have done, to take Jesus at his word. That if you will place your trust in him, if you will come to God through him, through Jesus, God will gladly accept you. And you will become even today part of this new creation where you are welcomed by the Father, received by him. It is a great privilege to exist in this, this world that God has made, right? I try to thank God often just that I exist, Right? That's a, a good prayer. Uh, just thanking God that I even exist in this world. But God made us. He made Adam. He has made all of us for a better world, like where there is no death and where there's no distance between him, us and him. And to live in that world, there is one way. When we read Genesis 1, I think we ought to be blown away by all sorts of things about God right? Like his power, his glory, his creativity, his generosity, right? His patience, even all these sorts of things, his, his sovereignty, all these traits we can see in creation. But there are some things as you read Genesis 1 that you can't fully see about God until the coming of Jesus. In Genesis 1, you don't see till sin comes in. You don't see mercy of God, right? You don't see grace of God. You see all these other wonderful, amazing things about God. But in the sending of Jesus and his sacrifice upon the cross and his offer of pardon and eternal life to us, we see things in that story that we don't fully see here. We see mercy. We see grace. We see compassion upon sinners. And so may we keep looking at Genesis 1 and be in awe of this world, but may we look at everything and to the person that it points to, right? The person of Jesus who has come into this world and prepared a better place. For us. Amen. I invite you to stand.